In most uh, helping professions in society, whether that be the medical field, the uh, social work field, the counseling field, uh, perhaps even legal fields, law enforcement, what, whatever it may be, there is a code of ethics that guides those professions in the work that they do. And quite often, if it's not explicitly stated in those code of ethics, it's at least summarized by a simple statement, do no harm. And that motto or that statement uh, encapsulates the goal of those professions to, to prioritize the health and well-being of individuals that are being served. There is value in thinking about our work in the Lord's church from that perspective. From having a mindset that understands the purpose of the church, the purpose of our membership in it, not just that it's the vessel or vehicle of salvation, but that it is also a entity in which God strengthens us and builds us up and equips us to walk the journey that he has called us to walk together. This morning's sermon is a mission statement sermon that uh, focuses specifically on the strengthening our family component. Strengthening or edifying our family by embodying the truth in love. And so what I would like to do is first entitle this sermon, Do No Harm. And I would like to approach this subject to three points of observation. The first point that we will note is that the church, by its very nature, is geared toward building up and not tearing down. We'll notice some passages of Scripture that demonstrate that from various books in the New Testament. The second point of observation is this. I want us to look at a biblical model, in particular Romans chapter 14, where this principle of do no harm is taught by the Apostle Paul. And then thirdly, I would like to wrap up with some do no harm questions that you and I should ask ourselves regularly as we think about our relationship with one another in the body of Christ and our goal as a congregation to strengthen our family by embodying the truth in love. Back to the first point of observation. The church is geared toward building up and not tearing down. I see that, and you do as well, in a number of places in the Bible. I think, first of all, to... Uh, Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 32, where Paul calls the elders from Ephesus together and gives them a warning about the damage that is going to be caused to the church. And he warns them that there will be men from among themselves who will rise up and be contributors to not the strengthening, not the edifying, not the building up, but the tearing down and the destroying. That passage there says, Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, over the which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers, 
to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. He goes on to say, for I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that by the space of three years, I did not cease to warn you every night, uh, a day and night with tears. And then he says, so now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. It's safe, right, and appropriate this morning to say that edification of Christians in the body of Christ stems primarily from the Word of God and our application to it to our lives and to our relationships. Paul describes a situation here where that wouldn't happen, but he reminded them that the Word is able. It has the inherent capacity to build us up and to give us an inheritance together among those who are sanctified. If you just think about other passages where this idea of building up and strengthening is emphasized or alluded to, I think about Jesus' prayer in John 17. The preeminent point in that prayer was the unity of the believers. In those, in like eight verses of that prayer, Jesus emphasizes some six times this idea of oneness, togetherness, working together with a common goal of glorifying God and drawing people to him through the gospel. So Paul to the Ephesian elders emphasizes this idea of building up, of oneness, togetherness, Jesus emphasizes it in his prayer. And this idea is all over the books of 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Paul makes the point, and it was read for us a moment ago in our scripture reading, that fellowship in Christ Jesus is not about individuality. Sometimes I say, and I remind myself, and I have reminded in sermons, it's not about me. It's not about you. It's about him um, and about our working together to save one another to his glory and honor. But that passage again says, how is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Look at all the individuality and what Paul is pointing out in their behavior. And then he says, let all things be done for edification. In other words, even in our worship, the things that we are doing are not about individual performance. They are about edification, building up, strengthening one another. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, if you just read that chapter and look at it, you'll see this idea repeated there that the church may receive edification. Let it be done for edification. 
done for edification, 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 edification. In other words, building up, strengthening our family by embodying the truth in love is the idea. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 17, Paul writing about the disruptive way they are observing the Lord's Supper. You remember? Some had, some didn't. They had turned it into a common meal and some were being neglected. And there was a division of sorts between people. It had become a source of contention and division rather than a source of strengthening and edification and oneness. And Paul says there before he reiterates the instruction that he had received from the Lord Jesus about the Lord's Supper. He says, now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you since, listen to this, you come together not for the better, but for the worse. You mean these Christians were coming together for worship, but the end result of it was worse and not better? That's, a, that's crazy. That we could come together as God's people to worship God and the end result be worse than better. And that's exactly what was taking place for them. And I would suggest in light of that, that if we are better off when we are apart then when we are when we are together, we are not doing church the way Jesus wants us to. If coming together makes things worse, something's wrong. Because that is not in alignment with the instruction of Paul. It's not in alignment with the prayer of Jesus. It's not in alignment with the instruction that he gave to address the problems at Corinth. Our coming together should strengthen. It should build up. It should edify. And any time that it doesn't, we ought to be quick to ask the question why and fix whatever is broken. In reality, every action that we engage in should be born out of the goal, do no harm. Even when the church is applying discipline where it's necessary, the goal should be do no harm. Only betterment should come even in those desperate situations. Think about 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, where Paul pointed out the fornication that was taking place in the church at Corinth and how puffed up the people were rather than having dealt with it the way that they should, and how much worse the church was because of the way they were dealing with that situation instead of better. We deduce from the instruction given in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6, that the church handled that situation eventually the way they were supposed to. Paul says there, sufficient, uh, sufficient for such a one is this punishment, which was inflicted by many, so that uh, to the contrary, you ought to forgive him, lest he be swallowed up with much sorrow. 
And then the next verse, he says that he, in, in effect, he pleads with them to reaffirm their love for him. And so even in situations where discipline is applied, the end result is strengthening. The end result is building up. The end result is reaffirming our love for one another. In other words, regardless of what it is that we do or we're supposed to do as the church, it should be done from a mindset of do no harm. That's how we get to the point of edifying and strengthening our family. Our coming together should always be for the better and not for the worse. Now, I invite your attention to Romans chapter 14 because in reading through this chapter, a do no harm chapter, there are a number of points that Paul makes that really apply in a general way to this idea of do no harm. The situation in Romans chapter 14 is the concern over eating meats offered to idols. And Paul makes the point that you're at liberty to do that. There's nothing wrong with the meat, but you have to do it from the mindset of do no harm. Because if you walk all over the faith and the conscience of your brother and sister in Christ, who's not there where you are in understanding, then you've not helped the church at all. In fact, you've done harm and you've made things worse. So what better example could we use to demonstrate this principle of do no harm than to turn to a situation that speaks of Christian liberty, where you and I have in certain things a right to do it because it's our liberty to do it. But we can do it in a way and our taking that liberty may do more harm than good. And we have to be mindful of that because our goal is to strengthen rather than to tear down and destroy. I want to take the time to read uh, Romans chapter 14 and just into the first verses of chapter 15. I hope you'll go there in your Bible because after we read it, I want to make a note of the, the points or the statements that Paul makes that I think are especially helpful to this subject this morning. <laughs> he says, receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let him who eats despise not him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Who are you to judge another's servants? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day above another, another esteems another day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, He who gives, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat, to the Lord he does not eat and gives God thanks. Again, we're talking about areas of Christian liberty. For one of us, or for none of us lives to himself and no one dies to himself. 
For if we live, we live unto the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we uh, shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and things by which one may edify another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat or drink wine, nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith, for whatever is not from faith is sin. We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. Now again, contextually, we're talking about whether it's okay for Christians to eat meats that's, that are sold in the marketplace that have in previously been involved in idolatrous practices in some way. Paul is taught, an idol is nothing. It's just meat. It's okay to eat it. Now, he does say if a person is not fully convinced of that, then it's not okay for him to eat it because whatever is not a faith is sin. But the greater point in emphasis here is those who knew it was okay were walking all over Christians who weren't sure about its okayness. And they were thinking more about their liberty. They were more self-centered and self-focused than they were on their role and goal of edification. The, the whole point of doing no harm to a brother. And Paul goes on to say they're destroying the work of God through the exercise of that liberty. Now, there are a number of points that we can draw from this incident and Paul's having addressed it that apply to us today as we walk together hand in hand as brothers and sisters in Christ 
to do the work of God to his glory ultimately, but to the edification and building up of each other. And here they are. The first one is in verse 1. Great damage, there is great damage that is done in disputes about doubtless things. Sometimes we need to back away from the arguments or conflict that we start and ask the question, is it worth this? Is this really in view of the gospel, in view of the church and our role in edifying one another, is this a doubtless dispute? Or is something substance, substantive that needs to be addressed? Because that matters. Is this something the Bible says I need to address? Or is this something that I'm pressing for personal reasons? You see, these Christians were glad that they could eat meat. <clears throat> this meat that had these negative connotations attached to it. And now I've, I have this liberty and I'm going to do it. And I don't really care, at least I'm not taking thought of the fact that I'm running over people left and right in the exercise of my liberty. Sometimes things come to our minds that we think we ought to do and we should do, and it's not, it's not motivated by thus saith the Lord, but it's what I think, and I just run over people in doubtless things. And that doesn't lead to edification that doesn't fall into the category of do no harm. Here's the second one. It's in verse 7. No one lives or dies to himself. Every action in which I engage, relationship speaking, has an impact. It can either build up or it can either knock people down a notch. The things I say, the attitudes I demonstrate, Whatever it is, it has an impact on someone. And Paul reminds them of that. Look, you've, you're convinced, and rightly so, that you can eat this meat. And I agree. There's nothing wrong with you eating it. But that doesn't just affect you. That has an impact on those who are not so convinced. And they see it and they might be compelled to eat it even though they're not convinced and what you've done is you've led them into sin because they've not acted by faith in eating the same meat that you are exercising your liberty to eat. Now maybe we're not talking about eating meat and our relationship meat offered to idols today in the church, but there are certainly situations where we do things thinking, this, this is my business. This, is, this doesn't concern you. It doesn't concern anybody else. And we need to back up and ask. Because Paul says, no one lives to himself and no one dies to himself. And he asks that question or he makes that statement in the context of people walking on each other. That could be a manifestation of an attitude. It could be the manifestation of words that we speak that cause harm. It, it could be our choice to absence ourselves from the assembly when we're supposed to be here. Could be, because I might think, well, 
you know, I've got something more pressing to do tonight. Or, you know, I've, I did what I was supposed to do this morning. I'm not going to worry about tonight. What I'm telling us is when it comes to strengthening our family, no one lives to himself and no one dies to himself. We have an impact and we are affecting one another in ways that maybe we have not considered. And if I'm going to line up with my brothers and sisters in this local congregation and adopt a mindset that says we're strengthening our family, then I need to think about the fact that I don't live or die to myself. Others are impacted and affected by the choices that I make. The next one is in verse 10. <laughs> Where he asks about your judgment or your contempt. What, why are you judging your brother or why do you show contempt to your brother? Anytime we feel judgy, anytime we feel contemptuous, we should back away and ask ourselves why and interrogate those thoughts and those motives and see if they're in alignment with the word of God. Or if it's just because I've gotten my feelings hurt. Or if it's something to do with doubtless things, I need to interrogate that judgment and that contempt. Now, there are times when judgment is, is right and appropriate. But even in that, the end goal should be do no harm. It should be edify and strengthen and build up and correct and help. And so we need to ask about our judgment and the contempt that we might show to one another. Why, why do we feel that way and what's motivating that? And is, does it fall under the umbrella of do no harm? The next one is in verse 13. Resolve not to put a stumbling block before your brother. Sometimes we do things not thinking about the impact that it will have on a brother or sister in Christ. And what we've done in reality is put a tripping hazard in front of them. That's what was taking place in chapter 14 here relative to meat. But that's not the only time that concept applies. We can do things and we should ask ourselves and interrogate our purposes and say to ourselves, if I do this, is it going to cause someone to stumble? And you might, in the back of your mind, say, yeah, I have a right to do it. It's my right to do it. I have the liberty to do this. But so did they with respect to meat. And Paul impressed upon them the importance of not putting a stumbling block or a tripping hazard before someone else. Number the next one is found in verse 15. Christians are often destroyed without just cause. You know, some of the fights Christians pick sometimes don't line up with anything that the Bible speaks of. They're just fights. They're just disagreements. They're just points of contention. And it would be in our best interest individually and as a congregation to bring those judgments into the court of God and say, is this a case God would take? As judge, would he take this case? Or is it something that has to do with doubtless things like meats offered to idols? The Christians are often destroyed because we judge 
without cause. The next one is found in verse 17. It's possible to lose sight of what is important. What is important? Here, according to Paul, the kingdom is. What do my actions do to the kingdom? Do they build it up or do they bring it down? I need to think about that. These Christians were destroying the church through a matter of liberty. The next one is in verse 19. He says, set your pursuit on things aimed at peace and edification. And again, I, I am not talking about this morning situations where there is sin in the congregation that needs to be dealt with and needs to be dealt with judiciously. That, that's a biblical reality just what, as is what we're talking about this morning. But I would remind us, even in that, the whole purpose should be to edify, to strengthen, and build up the body. The next one is found in verse 20. The work of God is jeopardized when we inflict harm on one another. And so don't do it. Two more, verse 1 of chapter 15, he says, Satisfying our own pleasure is not a sign of strength. If I assert my right and my privilege to the detriment of a brother or sister in Christ, that's not strength. That's not a sign of spiritual maturity. What that is is an attitude that says, I don't care about the kingdom. I don't care about edifying or building up. I'm going to do what is my right. I'm going to do what I want to do. And I'm going to handle this the way I want to handle it rather than doing it from a do-no-harm mindset. And then in verse 2, he says, Strengthening, strength actually manifests as edification, not injury. If, if you want to demonstrate or if I want to demonstrate that I'm a strong, spiritual, mature Christian, how is that manifested? It's manifested in doing things that end up in edifying rather than injuring people. If we walk all over one another, if we do harm to one another, all we're doing is demonstrating our spiritual immaturity, not maturity. And it's interesting, you know, if you look at congregations and, you know, men, We've all likely been a member of more than one, and we've seen situations where personal agendas, personal preferences, pride, all of these attitudes that the Bible condemns leads to destruction in congregations. And, you know, many years later after that effort has happened, People looking around, and they say, I can't really tell you why it happened. It was something personal. You know, it's rarely the execution of a thus saith the Lord. Not always, but rarely. It's usually personal. When Christians lose sight of their mission and their goal to edify and strengthen as they walk hand in hand with brothers and sisters. And so if you just redact the reason for all the damage that's done, what you see is just harm, harm to the body of Christ. And so we have a biblical model of do no harm in Romans 14 that gives us a lot of principles that could help us fulfill our mission of strengthening our family by embodying the truth and love. Now, very quickly, number three, some do no harm questions I should ask myself regularly. Number one, 
Is the energy I expend in the congregation positive or negative? The energy that I expend in my relationship and involvement with you, is it positive or is it negative? Seems like a pretty easy question to answer. And since getting angry and quitting is not an option, how do I change the polarity of that? How do I change it from negative to positive? Because that's what I need to do. Because I have a responsibility to build up and edify. So how do I change my negative energy into positive energy? Number next, in conflict, is my goal to help the church? And is the method that I'm using suitable for that? You know, if if my goal is to bulldoze out of the building all the people that I don't agree with, that's, you know, that's not a... That's not a method. It's not even a goal that's worthwhile. In conflict, my goal should be to help the church. And the method that I do that should be suitable for the cause. Number next, if not, how can I de-escalate that situation? If I get into a situation with a brother or sister or two groups in the church together who are at odds, and the goal of it is not to help the church, and the method is not appropriate, how do I de-escalate that and move toward healing? Don't just anchor in and say, well, we're already on this course. We might as well just see it through, and what happens, happens. I should ask myself, when I realize I've got the wrong approach, that the Lord's good is not my cause, how do I de-escalate? And how do I move toward a goal of healing? Number next, do I have a problem with pride? Do I have a problem with jealousy? Do I have a problem with envy? Do I have a problem with anger? Do I have a problem with malice? Many of these sins we talked about in Bible class this morning, none of those work hand in hand with strengthening or edifying. And so I need to get rid of those. And if Jesus were my counselor, what would he tell me to do? What would he say I needed to change in order to make my involvement positive instead of negative? What would he tell me to do? What would he tell me to change? And then will I do it? Will I make those changes? Those are a few do-no-harm questions that I can ask myself regularly to make sure that I'm in alignment with the mission statement of this congregation to strengthen our family by embodying the truth in love. You know, people drive by this building all the time, and you and I drive by it occasionally. Maybe I do more than most people. But we all, from time to time, drive by this building. We have an opportunity to look to the left or to the right and observe the building. And the church is not the building, but this is the place where we come together the most to edify and strengthen one another. And every time we pass by this building, we have the opportunity to look to the left or to the right and say, I'm a part of good things that happen there. My involvement and the energy that I expend there is positive. It's not negative. The things I do and the way that I interact with people here builds them up. It doesn't tear them down. And we should be proud of that if that's our experience. 
I want you, as we close, to envision a future scene in your mind for just a moment. Just in your mind, envision a future scene of you driving by this building and you look to the left or you look to the right and you see a dilapidated building. Dilapidated building. It's not occupied. It's worn out. It's obvious people aren't using it anymore. And I want you to add to that, that's in my community. It looks familiar to me. In fact, I once was a member of that congregation. And as you think about that future scene of a building that you used to go to and be a part of worship and edification, I want you to think about what destroyed it. What brought it to a place where people were no longer using it? Where the people that once assembled there have been disbanded and they've gone to other places. It was destroyed. But how did it happen? Congregations are rarely destroyed by forces other than their own people. Rarely. Sometimes a tornado will destroy one. But you know what people do? They, they build again right on it. And they go right back to the work in which they were engaged. But when it's destroyed the way that I'm talking about it being destroyed, it's rarely an external force. It's always the people on the inside. And so I want you to think about that as you look at this building in its left condition. Nobody using it. It's been destroyed. It was destroyed by the people on the inside. And I want us to think about our role and the role that we might have played in that future scene of its demise. And what would that look like? We have an opportunity as Christians to work together in a congregation to stand firm on the truth of God's word and to proclaim it as loud as we can. But at the same time, in order to ensure that we always have that opportunity, we have to work together with the goal of doing no harm to ourselves. And we do that by strengthening and building up and not doing things that weaken and tear down. And may God always help us to be reminded of our goal and our purpose as we work together. And may it always be the case that as we look at one another and we try to figure out how to deal with one another at times, that we approach those responsibilities and those situations with a do-no-harm attitude and mindset. This morning, if you're here and you're not a Christian, the Lord's Church is a beautiful entity, organism, institution. He planned it, he established it, he purchased it with his blood. And in order for you to be saved, you have to be a member of it. But when you become a member of it, you have the opportunity to line up side by side with other Christians who are trying to go to heaven and who have a mindset of strengthening you as you strengthen them, of injecting positivity into that joint effort, and never negative energy.
And so you can be a part of that, be a part of making this congregation what it ought to be and benefiting from what it should be through obedience to the gospel this morning, through faith, repentance, confession, and baptism for the remission of your sins. You can become a Christian, saved, added to the church by the Lord, all in that one act, but then with a responsibility to grow and to use your knowledge and your growth to strengthen the body by embodying the truth in love, just as we're all striving to do. If you're subject to the invitation in any way this morning, whether you need to obey the gospel, whether you have a need where that uh, necessitates public repentance, whatever it is, we're here to encourage and help you in any way as we stand and sing. Thank you for listening to this recorded audio of a sermon that was preached at the Roanoke Church of Christ. If you'd like to visit us, you can do so at 608 Dallas Drive, Roanoke, Texas, 76262, or you can visit our website at roanokechurchofchrist.org. We hope to see you soon, and may God bless you.